Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. The audio quality on this recording is less than we are normally able to provide due to some technical difficulties, but this is a good time to remind listeners that there are full transcripts of the interview that you can find on the show notes website and at artofrange.com. I apologize for the inconvenience, but because it is difficult to reproduce an interview, I would encourage listeners to check out the transcript if there are content details that are difficult to hear. Thank you. My guest today on the Art of Range is Richard Fleener. Richard has a long track record working in rangelands and is currently the Natural Resource Conservation Service State Range Specialist for Washington State. He has a lot of experience in plant materials, and we're going to focus a bit on that today in the context of fire recovery, but first some introductions. Uh, Richard, what got you interested in rangeland science, and what are some of the roles you've been in as a range professional? Oh, over the years, I, I got interested in range science. Actually, uh, um, in college, I was, wasn't sure what I was going to major in. and I looked into biology and, and forest uh, resources, that kind of thing. But then I uh, found out, that <clears throat> investigating a bit, that um, uh, the range management specialists um, were the ones that spent the most time in the field. Mm-hmm. So I went, uh, I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was kind of my, what got me into it. And over the years, uh, I've worked for uh, Bureau of Land Management as a range technician and for the Cabo Confederate Tribes in a couple positions. Uh, one is a vegetation ecologist and one is a range management specialist. Actually, as a range conservationist is what they call them, the tribe. And then for the NRCS, I worked in different positions, uh, range conservationist, management specialist, and uh, plant materials specialist. Mm-hmm. And how who was in the position here with the NRCS range specialist before you were? I was Keevan. Keevan. And he, he had that position for, uh, he's a long, long-time range management specialist for the NRCS, but he was only a state range guy for about three or four years, something like that. And was Jerry Rouse prior to him? Yes, and he'd been there for like for a while. 10, 15 years or something like that. Yeah. And Jerry was instrumental, wasn't he, in helping put together some of the ecological site descriptions for Washington State? Absolutely, yep. And, yeah, he was he was a really smart guy, and uh, he put those together. We're actually reviewing, renewing them now or updating them. And so they're going to be revised a little bit. But, yeah, Jerry put them all together in 2003. Mm-hmm. 2003, 2004, I think it was. Yeah. I think I'm still working off a batch of draft ESDs that he gave me back in 05 or 06. And I think they kind of, I think they kind of stayed that way. I yeah. think we just left them as draft. Uh, and now on across the nation, they're trying to do more of them, and it's got to do with, again with some software issues. Um, they we're developing. We have software now that are, that is going to collect a lot of information geographic information so when a planner goes in and does a plan um this this software will collect a lot of data geographically like on soils ecological sites and stuff like that 
So because it's that's a nationwide thing for NRCS, we're um, <clears throat> we're updating those uh, ecological sites even more. And it does, it's not to say it, we're not done yet with them. By the way, it's not to say those old ones aren't super useful. They're still super good, and they're in the FOTG, the field office technical guide. Mm -hmm. So they're still there, still usable. By all means, use those until these other ones get updated. And in some ways, some people may prefer the way the information is kind of laid out in the old ones to the way it's laid out in the new ones, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. We may come back to ESDs, Amanda. I hadn't thought about that, but uh, I want to talk a bit about fire. People are maybe tired of hearing about fire and probably tired of things burning up, but periodic fire is a reality in much of the Western Yeah, Yeah, even though we're yeah. enjoying a, a snowstorm today, <laughs> we're still talking about fire. Uh, but regular fire is a reality here and in lots of places around the world. And love it or hate it, wildfire happens and we have to think through how to respond to it. Uh, you know, how to limit ecological damage from wildfire, how to reestablish uh, stabilizing functional vegetation after fire, whether to seed something new, uh, even if new means getting back to native or naturalized species. All these questions seem to revolve around vegetation, uh, species-specific responses to fire, conditions of the plant-soil interface, and uh, the relative maybe adaptability of various possible plant species to a given soil and climate type. We obviously can't cover all of the soil-climate combinations in a one-hour interview, but but in the United States and worldwide, there are lots of semi-arid vegetation types that have similar precipitation patterns, and I think similar ecological risks to the ones we experience in the Intermountain West and the Great Basin, which are themselves you know, pretty large areas and would cover an awful lot of uh, podcast listeners. Uh, the impetus for this particular interview and, and probably several to follow is wildfire recovery in our region. Uh, the inland northwest, and specifically rangeland fires as opposed to forest fires. Uh, so we'll cover some details probably that will not be applicable everywhere, but the principle discussed would be widely applicable, I think. Uh, so feel free to punt any question that you don't feel comfortable answering, but we'll wade in and uh, feel our way through some important topics that I know you know something about. Uh, I, it feels like one of the bigger questions that has to be answered relatively soon after a wildfire event is whether to let the existing plant community come back or to apply intentional management effort to try to establish something else and direct the vegetation successional trajectory towards something other than what was there before the fire. And one reason that's a big question is that it's a financial question, especially for private landowners. This can cost a fair bit of money. Uh, both seeding and weed control can be expensive, and so there needs to be some expectation of success to justify that expense. Uh, so here's the first real question for you. Uh, how does uh, how would you go about determining whether seeding is advisable? You know, fire severity, pre-fire species composition come to mind, but uh, where would your own thinking start on, on that? Well, well, I think that you have a good point there off the bat. Uh, Pre-fire uh, species composition—that's an important thing to remember, and and also your your goals and how you use the land. Um, because just because a fire comes through, and, and, and yeah, like you imply, there may be an opportunity to do something, but uh, you still want to keep in mind how you've been using it. Do you want to use it the same way? 
And, and so also, um, uh, and we talk about whether you should see or not in a second, but um, as far as species selection and stuff like that, it would really want to be compatible depending on how you burn. Fires usually burn in mosaic, you know, it's not super clean mm-hmm. and, and that kind of thing. So, um, uh, yeah, as far as that goes. Now, as far as, far as whether, you know, you just want to rehab the site even considering what species were there originally, and if you still like them, then of course, and you know all this stuff, uh, the burn severity is an important factor. If uh, if it was a low burn severity, then burn severity has to do with the amount of organic matter uh, above ground and to some extent below ground, um, how much organic matter, biomass, vegetation, whatever you want to call it, has been burned up, volatilized. And so low burn severity means you, your plants usually have most of your herbaceous species on rangeland, which most rangeland fires tend to be low severity fires. Most of that stuff will have survived. Um, so I'm not really in the fire community. I'm curious when, if a fire ecologist says fire severity, do they mean me as a plant person? I'm thinking the amount of plant damage that's been done, but a fire person maybe is speaking of, you know, temperature, known temperatures, or the, uh, you know, the completeness of a fire, you know, how little of a mosaic is left. How would a fire person, how, how would, maybe how would you define fire severity? Okay. So, I know those things are usually tied together, temperature sure. and plant damage, but. Sure. And it's, and, and people talk about um, burn fire intensity and, and, and that's sometimes, and you'll hear people actually um, use those sort of interchangeably and they're not. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. fire intensity is, yeah, like how hot things are burning and how how intense the fire is. It may come, maybe super intense, but it might move through pretty fast yeah. and still leave uh, root crowns intact and that kind of thing, even though it was high intensity. Right. But in that case, the severity, severity means how much basically um, really organic matter has been um, volatilized. And that even means so in, even into the soil, to where like the, the root crowns, the roots, the the uh, other organics in the soil have been volatilized. So now your soil structure's changed, right? Yeah. So now it's a more simplified soil ecosystem, if you will, and the soil's been damaged. So under low uh, burn severities, that's not going to have, have happened as much as opposed to medium severity. It's a little, it's worse, and uh, some plants survive, but some don't, and some more soil damage was done, but not super extensive. And then high severity, of course, as you can imagine, is uh, most of your plant matter has been burnt up, and it's even burnt organics in the soil. The soil structure has actually now changed, at least the top two to four inches or, or, or somewhat. And uh, and so you've, you've changed the soil properties as well. Yeah. Yeah. Does that answer the question? Yeah. So fire severity has to do with the effect of the fire. The effect of the fire. You could have a fire that looks like a... <clears throat> a flaming freight train that's going 40 miles an hour and it seems like it's Armageddon but if it blows past blows through the plant community really fast you know with high wind behind it that may not do a lot of severe damage right yeah. and, and and some of us have seen that like oh yeah. my gosh the sagebrush is torching 20 feet high in the air mm-hmm. it's just hot and then you can walk in there 20 minutes later and go well it's not mm-hmm. yeah it's not that bad hmm. 
So in the case of a severe fire where you expect or, or, or know that there was significant plant damage, uh, maybe, maybe to back up a bit, how would somebody determine if they're not sure whether the effects are severe or not? Like determine whether or not, say you've got, you know, a bunch of perennial grasses that were there prior to the fire and it burned. How can you tell whether or not those survived the fire? Yeah. So the way you do that is, um, and one, I would always say, if you're unsure about that, you know, um, contact extension agent or NRCS field office to get, get some additional help on that. But uh, just going out there, if you're, um, if the root crowns of grasses are still intact, like you can scrape off the top and maybe blackened on top. If you take your foot and kind of scrape off the top and there's still a little green crown um, or even a brown crown that wasn't burnt, then your grasses, your grass, grasses are in pretty good shape. That'd be low severity. And the crowns can even burn a little bit. And if you kind of dig down into the roots a little bit, but if all those, if all those roots just below the surface are still kind of intact, um, most of your grasses will have survived and they'll um, sprout back next year. Now, they may be scrawnier that first year. And, you know, you'll, what the NRCS recommends after any um, fire, any fire, is uh, to wait, uh, rest that a particular pasture that whole year and then defer grazing till seed set the second year, just to allow those grasses to recoup some of that energy and, um, mm-hmm. and, and produce seed mm-hmm. and, uh, and then kind of repopulate the spots that are, um, that are vacant of vegetation with new seeds. So um, anyway, so you still see crowns and roots. You, that's a low severity. If you look at it, and um, you scrape away, and the crowns look like they've been damaged more, and the roots may have been burnt like down like that, about it. a little bit into an inch or a little bit mm-hmm. in the top surface. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I should also talk about um, the amount of duff on the surface. If there's still some duff left, it's a low severity fire. Yeah. You know, if you've got like not much duff left, but there's some duff left, then it's um, it's kind of a medium intensity fire and the easy ones are to see is uh high severity there's no duff left I'm getting back to the vegetation it's just all been consumed there's it's white ash a low severity fire you have black ash right it'll be mm-hmm. it'll be black on the surface and then um, moderate you tend to still be kind of black black is on the surface a high severity fire tends to you know, all you're left with is white and gray ash Mm-hmm. And then oftentimes if you brush that away with your hand, the soils down below are kind of like a, a burnt orange um, mm-hmm. oftentimes. And so, that, yeah, and there's just no vegetation other than maybe some tree stumps, you know, mm-hmm. big, large stuff maybe is still there. But anything fairly small has been burnt up. I'm just asking questions when I think of them. In, in a severe fire where you have all the duff burn up, uh, would there be how well does the soil the the soil seed bank survive? Would you get plants coming back from seed? Yeah. So, like in a high severity, yeah, and that's a good that's a good question too. So, in in a, most cases, uh, no, it will burn up the seed bank as well in a high severity fire. Um, 
it uh, any only seeds that survive might be down four or five inches or something like that, and, mm-hmm. and those are liable will not make it to the surface anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but you will have, and that's a good point. With lowest severity fires, there still will be seed um, that will survive, and moderate severity less so, but some I'd say less so on our moderate, and then high severity you'd have essentially none. You couldn't count on it, in other words, yeah. to like revegetate your site. So whatever comes, whatever begins to grow in a plant community that experienced a high severity fire, would be seed that blows in from offsite, and be uh, deep rooted. Like if it was a deep rooted um, shrub or something that has meristematic tissue that are down below down the heat low, level. You know, like like you can you can torch off an aspen stand pretty crazy, right? Mm-hmm. And this goes for riparian areas in general. You, I see where. It'll just toward go up a draw, and you'll think that right. everything has been takes everything, takes everything, and mm-hmm. there's like that white powdery ash around, you know, mm-hmm. gets gone. But they have deep enough roots that in the next year you go, oh my gosh, there's ash right. like crazy here. Um, so that's riparian shrubs will do that. Deciduous shrubs, riparian shrubs will do that. What about perennial forbs? Would they survive that, or are their growing points too close but to the surface? They'd be pretty much too close for the most part. Yeah. I don't know if there's any exceptions. Then you, but we're talking about range, not forest, right? Yeah. So there's some forest species, just really quickly, really briefly, mm-hmm. like Ceanothus, that um, it has seeds. And it actually, when a fire comes through, it actually burns a little wax plug, and, and you'll go to a place that, that you didn't know had Ceanothus. And mm-hmm. after the fire, there's Ceanothus everywhere. Yeah. And you're like, where, where did this come from? Yeah. Uh-huh. So, but. That is a shrub. Mm-hmm. So if you had a high severity fire, it would likely be a good idea to put some seed down. Yes, yeah, and that's uh, and so maybe it's um so there's other things that you got to think about. Um, like if it's a high severity fire that burned through like kind of a rocky place, uh, it uh, it probably wouldn't do much good to try to seed that in. Mm. Um, so I, if you had a high severity fire with, with you know, moderate to deep soils, then I would, yeah, that would be a good place to see. Mm. Um, but sometimes we get these higher severity fires on a steep slope and it's rocky kind of, and, and you're probably not going to see those anyway. Mm-hmm. Might or might not take. Yeah. Uh, with a... With a low severity fire... Uh, how would you make a determination of whether or not seeding might be a good idea? So with the lowest severity fire, I'd say um, if if you had a, a good range to begin with, or a fairly good range to begin with, and you had a low severity fire on rangeland, um, it's probably, it's very likely just going to make it better. It's not going to impact it. Uh, you know, blue bunch and, and uh, uh, you know, Sherman big bluegrass and, and all these, um, they tend to survive fires pretty well. Mm-hmm. And they actually, blue bunch tends to like thrive afterwards. Uh, if you're, you had like an annual cheatgrass range and it burnt a moderate or light severity fire, uh, that might be an opportunity to actually, um, because it'll burn off the cheatgrass and it will burn some of the seeds laying on the surface. And so it's, it, it is almost like an opportunity if you want to take it uh, to like, uh, and I would recommend 
if the landscape allows, to drill in seed, because uh, you could drill in a perennial grass then, and um, oftentimes, and particularly in like a moderately severe fire, um, you'll burn enough of that cheatgrass seed that you kind of get like a year of a low cheatgrass production. Um, but if you do nothing, that second year, boom, you got cheatgrass of nobody's business, even like more than before the fire. Yeah. Um, so sometimes you have uh, a little bit of a window there. But if it, it's super light, you're still going to have cheatgrass there next year. Um, lights already fire. But if you drilled in a perennial grass that can compete with it, then that in the long run should give you better range. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you were going to seed some kind of perennial grass into a low severity fire that had cheap grass before the fire, uh, would it be a good idea to do some kind of site preparation like a herbicide treatment for the cheat grass? What are the, or maybe what would the, what would the likely successional pathway be if you just put down grass seed? To what extent could that suppress cheat grass? Well, it's if uh, I think ideally, if if um, you're, you had that situation, I think what I might want to do, and we're, let's just say we might be able to drill in, or regardless, broadcast or drilling. I guess, I guess if you're going to drill it in, uh, what you might want to do is uh, kind of wait, and if you get a fall rain, and sometimes we do, you know, we get enough rain that the cheatgrass will germinate. And then you could you could do a quick application of a broad spectrum herbicide and kill that last flush of cheatgrass. So now you've burnt some cheatgrass and you've got a last flush. And then if you drilled into that, I think you'd have pretty good success. Mm-hmm. Um, if yeah, if yeah. So I guess as far as site prep in these drier environments, you're not going to want to wait until spring to seed mm-hmm. because, as we know, these with these with the type of climate we have wet winters and somewhat wet springs but then dry summers and all mm-hmm. that. Um, usually uh, waiting till spring to seed um, in the like less than 12 inch precip zone uh, is your success is not that good. Mm-hmm. However, above that, like 14 inch precip zone, you can plant drill in the spring and have success and that would give you actually another opportunity to Spray the cheat grass if that was a situation. Yeah, after spring green up. After spring green up, spray yeah. it and in the like higher than twelve to fourteen inch or higher than that precip, and then you could drill in your perennial grass, and that would be a good opportunity and you to kill that that last flush of cheat grass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are there are there particular grass species that do a better job than others at uh, displacing or preventing invasion of cheat grass? Well, I think the main thing, this is just my opinion, mm-hmm. which I think it's probably common, is uh, the most adapted grass is to the site, right? So if you're in the Columbia Basin and you're you're in the seven to nine inch prison zone, it really doesn't matter that um, uh, hard fescue or some rhizomous grass really competes well with the cheat grass because of its root structure if it can't survive the low precip. Mm-hmm. And number one to compete, you got to have something that survives where it's planted. Mm-hmm. And uh, so even sometimes bunch grasses 
or your best choice, even though intuitively you might think, well, they don't have a root system as good as, you know, right. as, a, as a rhizomatous grass. So, so, um, so I would use, you know, look at the ecological sites um, for what species can grow there. And then also, um, find out from your vendors or whatever, what plant or NRCS, what, if they're not, if they're introduced species, what grow well, like let's say in a really low environment, or low precip environment and get that first. And then, um, and then if you have some options there, the species have a little bit better root structures and stuff, then yeah, go with those. I may have jumped the gun on that question, but you know, if, how would you go about determining what to seed? Because whether or not a plant can compete with cheatgrass is only one option or one consideration. Uh, you just mentioned the plant's got to be able to survive in the given site that you're planting it in. Like you're not going to plant orchard grass in a six inch rainfall zone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what to seed is getting back to kind of what's your goals and what are your what you have already and how you're managing the land already. Because even let's say you you got a site that's let's say it's in a low precip zone and you got mostly native species, you know, we'll just say a bunch or, or for now, and it gets burnt over and you think, well, I got an opportunity to put in like a little bit more aggressive, um, like a crested wheatgrass, or a Siberian wheatgrass, or something like that, and uh, and right after, at first thing, yeah, sure, that that's a that grows well in dry environments, productive, you know, it's hardy, I can graze it. In spring, more oftentimes than they could graze blue bunch. But again, if you had a, a moderate severity fire, you're still going to have blue bunch surviving. And then if you plant um, uh, Siberian or crested, now you've kind of got a, a funky mix of plants and they're going to be grazed kind of differently by your livestock. And you may have put yourself in a situation that. Um, it's harder to manage now because you got these two different types of species. Mm. So you want to make sure that yeah, the plants can survive there, and they're gonna they're gonna work with the management system that you have, and the other in the plants that are there. Unless for some reason, uh, we'll just go back to the high severity fire. If Evans torch, well then you don't have to worry about that so much, right? Because you've got nothing left, and you can put in kind of what you want. But having said that, um, you know, fires almost always are a mosaic. Mm-hmm. And you almost always, within not that big of a space, you can walk from a low severity area to a high severity area, you know. And um, mm-hmm. and again, high severity tends to be more rare on range. But you can have pockets of it, especially if you have juniper trees or if you have sagebrush, high densities of sagebrush in some places and stuff like that, where the fire stayed longer. Um, so you still have a mosaic, so it's um, it's never, you know, it's never, you know, just a super quick answer like, oh, mm-hmm. we'll always do this then. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of uh, a lot of um, seed company charts or plant materials charts include ease of establishment as one of the one of the ranking criteria. Uh, to what extent should that be considered? Like if a species is difficult to establish, you know, one, what exactly does that mean to somebody who's not a, a seed grower? Yeah, no, that's that's something to keep in mind as well. 
I would I would agree. So you might let's just again keep kind of talking about like a low precip environment. Mm-hmm. Um, you might have well, let's say you're going to put an introduced species in there because you, you you feel like that you'll have more success with that. Okay, um, and you might have a species that's pretty easy to establish. And in this case, I'm just using a couple examples like Siberian wheatgrass will do well in the the seven to nine inch precip zone of the Columbia Basin. And you might go, well, I know Russian wild rye. That's that's pretty drought tolerant, and uh, and that um, you know I might want to do that. Uh, talking about your ease of establishment, the Russian wild rye is kind of more finicky in, in getting established. Once it gets established, it's a it's a it's a pretty great plant for forage and that kind of thing. But it's a little more finicky than like Siberian wheatgrass. So yeah, you might make a decision there to go. With Siberian, if you don't want to risk it, so um, and just, does, yeah. And does finicky mean that it's has a tolerates a narrower range of soil conditions, or that it requires planting at a really specific planting depth? What all does finicky mean in well, these establishment? The planting depth is one of them, uh, and then it just the the, um, the vigor of the seedlings is less hardy. Mm. So yeah, you have to get the you got to be more picky on how at the right depth, and then the, the seedlings are all, you know, less vigorous. So right. if it's competing with cheatgrass and all this and that, it's not going to do so great in the beginning, whereas Siberian would kind of do pretty well from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's what happened. Now, in the long run, like if if the cheatgrass was controlled and stuff, eventually the Russian wild rye will be really competitive. Right. But it's just... It just doesn't come out of the gate as well, right? And, and there's and there's other there's other species that are known for kind of easy to establish, like slender slender wheatgrass, blue wild rye, you know, mountain brome. Um, there's quite a few like that. And, and yeah, I don't want to get off the subject here, but um, oftentimes those ones that are easy to establish, they tend to be short lived. Yeah, it's kind of like yeah, right. I've heard it said about some of the the big warm season perennial grasses of the Midwest that it's a bit like growing an elephant. It takes a lot of work to bring it to maturity, but once you've got it there, you really got something. Oh, okay. and has a lot of value. It's got longevity. It's you That'd know be like a, the a significant asset. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, and yeah, and there's you know yeah that'd be. I don't know, is the audience just in the Northwest here? No, I mean, yeah, it's more of a national audience. Okay. And so as you as you expect, being Washington NRC, I'm more familiar with the Pacific Northwest. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I think the same thing applies with some of the preferred perennial species here. Uh, going back to seeding, I've seen some commercial timothy fields where uh, the, the soil bed was too fluffy, and the only place where it germinated was where the tractor tires had rolled over a place that had already had seed put down. And every place that had not been compacted by the tractor tires, uh, nothing established because the seedlings came up, the root hairs didn't find anything solid to hang on to, ran out of moisture and, and just died. Yeah. Yeah, it's yes, it, it's troublesome. Like, now this isn't in just range, but like in... Dealing with a lot of fires, you know, post-fire rehab, um, there'd be a lot of dozer lines around fires, right? And so, 
you know, the dozer lines, when they're fighting fire, they build all these dozer lines to con uh, control the fire. And then it's all over with. And then what part of the rehab is, is they go and they pull the berms back on the dozer lines. And by that time, it's all fluffy. It, they, it's almost powder. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we'd have money uh, to seed. And you kind of, oftentimes, with fire, uh, you're, oftentimes you're limited when you're working with, uh, you know, assistance from the government or whatever. Uh, like, okay, you have money to seed now. You do it now or you don't get it. And right. so you'd seed necessarily not at the best of times. And sometimes you'd seed that. And if you seed it right after they pulled the berms back, it's like you said, be so powdery. The seed would kind of just sink in there and be so fluffy. It wouldn't, wouldn't do worth a darn. And it would die. But then if you wait and you get a rain, then you get like a little bit of a small cap and the yeah. seed just sit right on top. And that didn't really work so well. Right. So there's a lot of circumstances that don't really work out so well, you know, that uh, um, that you got to live with. And so, yeah, uh, maybe talk a bit about planting method, and then we'll come back to some species. I've heard some aerial applicators say that you, if you're going to apply seed in any broadcast method, you've got to get it before the first rains come following a fire, because that tends to cause the ash and soil to kind of cap off and do just what you described. Yeah. Um, would you say the same thing uh, if a person was trying to broadcast on the ground? Yeah, I I think that um, it kind of sort of comes down to like precip again. I think, yeah, I would probably, all things being equal, try to get it in while there's still some ash that's a little bit powdery, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. Again, being keeping in mind that it's usually a, a lighter severity fire type situation. Um, that uh, the seed can kind of land on that. Uh, I think that in a little bit higher precip areas where you get significant snowfall, um, I think that you can wait until if you can do it like right before the snow falls mm -hmm. and, um, mm -hmm. and then they get a snow cap layer on that. Uh, I think you can have some success with that. But it, um, I I've seen so many, I've seen it done both ways, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and I've been disappointed both ways uh, quite a bit. And it'd be frustrating on these bear teams, spend all this money, you fly all that seed on, and you go out, and it's just the success is, is fair, fairly well. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so it, um, yeah, that's why we always speak of if you can drill it in, right? Yeah. And if it's you're seeding a dozer line or something, if you can, um, you know, try to wait till that it's till you get good seed soil contact without being super fluffy, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. Because just brought through, I've seen so much seed thrown out, and, and even if it's even if it's you seed when it's still like right after a fire, if it's a moderate fire, you throw that seed out there. There's still so many plant roots and plants that are still there. The little seed isn't going to do anything to compete with what the plants are already there anyway. And, you know, oftentimes you'll see people seed a fire that's like it doesn't even need it. It's not going to do anything but feed mice and <laughs> right. insects. And, uh, you know, and, and, and because there's enough root crowns, I think, there, it's going to mm -hmm. sprout anyway. So, yeah. Uh, range drills are a pretty 
a pretty involved piece of equipment. It's not the kind of thing you can pick up for 500 bucks at a used implement dealer. Uh, to what extent are there rangeland drills available for rent for uh, private landowners? Yeah, that's that's a good question too. And I wish there was more and I haven't, um, I'm not exactly sure. It wasn't too long ago I was talking with uh, one of the conservation districts and, um, and I guess the BLM down at Vail has several range drills that they they don't even I think they might want to, they might not even renting or get rid of they you know down there I guess they've got some okay. so I think they're around I know the res, a tribe Cabo tribe has an old one whether it still works or not um, I'm hmm. not sure but so somewhere around but you're right most people aren't going to have access to that uh, so I. It, uh, you can see it if it's not if you don't have rocky range ground and you have a regular grain drill. Yeah, um, you, you should be able to run. Of course, if it's rocky, then you're going to beat your drill up, and you, people may not want to do that. Right. Um, and I get that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's go back to some to some species and maybe reference material. Where would somebody like if say I live here? And I want to know which should I plant here. The way I would go about that as a extension person is finding a list of plants for that soil type, either from a, a soil site description or from an ecological site description. Are there other places to get lists of potential species that would be native to that soil type? Let's just let's just stick with that for just one second. Um, yeah, the Web Soil Survey. Is out there for everybody. Just you can Google that and and then you can, and pick out your location on the landscape. It's pretty easy to use. Uh, pick out your area of interest and it has all sorts of data. And, and like you mentioned, it'll have an ecological site description in there. And so you know what ecological site description you got. And even if it doesn't list, it doesn't have the ecological site. Uh, it'll say what ecological site is. Excuse me. And then the ecological site description, which is several pages of information, uh, then you can uh, go to your the NRCS field office technical guide and in section two, uh, go in and find that ecological site description that fits uh, soils on your map. And that gives you an idea what plants grow there natively. And so that's if you're interested in planting native species, that'd be a good source there. And if you can't find that, you can call up your NRCS office and they can take your location and dig it out for you? Absolutely. And they'd be a great reference for even knowing kind of which, uh, yeah, which plants would do a little bit better than others. And kind of like these questions, some of the questions you have, which ones established a little easier mm -hmm. than others. And, uh, and then also which introduced ones, which obviously won't be on the ecological set description. Right. And they might say, well, these introduced ones work here pretty good. I asked because I've had a hard time finding ESDs from oh. the Web Soil oh. Survey, oh. which is why I end up going back to the draft copies I've got from oh. Jerry Rouse. And that's that's going to be changing, uh, which it's not going to be very helpful to say now, but they're putting it in this new software called Edit. And uh, um, but I think we'll end up, mm. I think we'll end up, that'll be accessible to NRCS people. But then um, I, I think it'll still be available to the general public in the field office technical guidance section too. Um, those total, those descriptions. And yeah, by the way, I know this is just that this comments just for Washington. 
it's in the archive folder in section two. Don't be afraid to go in and use that. Hmm. Yeah, there. I have been really impressed with the amount of information that's available in the ecological site descriptions, and I think they're really useful. Yeah, they're yeah, very good. Yeah, are there other lists of uh, species recommendations, maybe specifically oh. seeding recommendations for a given region? And I know that Washington, we have, uh, again, in the field off stifle guide, we even have post-fire seeding recommendations, just kind of a general one-page thing, because sometimes people need it in a hurry. Um, so it gives some general recommendations for rangeland, for forest land, uh, range native, range not native, and and then also if you if you plan on putting down something like a, a winter wheat or something like that to control erosion as as quickly as you can. And but I think that uh, most NRCS uh, states will have um, their own. Well, uh, several states, as you know, have plant material centers, and uh, plant material actually the plant materials uh, website is a great place. Mm -hmm. Now you mention it um, mm -hmm. for particular seeding uh, information like this for particular states. So you can go to your particular state or your closest plant material center, and then look for things in there, and they'll usually have guidelines on seeding mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Both species mixes and uh, methodology seeding recommendations. Yes, yes. And I know in Washington we have, um, so a few years ago, it was, I worked with Jerry Rouse just before he left, and we put together a, a seeding guide, and it's on the Washington uh, Field Office Technical Guide, uh, but it's in an access database, and more and more people are not using access right. anymore. So it's something that I need to try to get in either Excel or even maybe even in a simpler format than that. Mm -hmm. um, but if you have access and you're interested in Washington, Oregon hmm. seeding, um, particularly on the, well, on the east side is what this access database addresses, but then we've also got information in there on the, for the west side as well, uh, Oregon and Washington. Is the information from that in the... Washington and Oregon NRCS, I think it's like a uh, revegetation guide or something like that. There's a publication that's a couple hundred pages long that's pretty significant. It looks like it might be the data that you're referring to in that access database. Um, Not sure. Yeah, we might be talking about two different things. Okay. Yeah. That one I know is available and it's useful, so we'll post that That'd be link great. to that on the website. That'd be great. And there's some really good documents that sometimes I just forget are out there. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. One of the questions that I don't even know if it's controversial or not, but it's something that we get asked all the time. Uh, you know, to what extent is there a, a functional difference between locally adapted native seed that tends to be significantly more expensive per pound and the commercial stuff that you can buy from a larger seed dealer where they have the same species name, uh, but there might be a tenfold difference in price. Well, I think that, of course, as you know, I'm not a geneticist, right? So <clears throat> just speaking from, from a range management and from a revegetation standpoint, uh, again, using an example here, the Columbia Basin is really dry. So you can buy a blue bunch wheatgrass 
um, you know, the stuff that's been around for years, Whitmar, Goldar, uh, some others, that uh, actually is, is really good material and it works really well. So I'm, I don't want to discount those. But if you're in a particularly really dry part of Washington, one of the drier parts of Washington, and you needed a, a like a, a blue bunch that to plant, and um, and if it wasn't a huge area and you could afford a little bit extra cost, getting a, a ecotype from the dry part of Washington, hmm. well, you'd probably have better success than getting the, the ecotypes that are from a little bit wet, wetter part. Like Whitmar was found you know, 14 inch precip zone or actually higher than that. <clears throat> um, so in that case, I, I think you could go with an ecotype and it'd be justified. Here in Washington, once you get a little, gets a little wetter, 14 inches, that kind of area. Um, uh, I don't know if you'd have to justify mm-hmm. the cost of a local ecotype. So the more severe the environment, the narrower the range of conditions that the, or that you need a, a you need an ecotype that's specifically adapted to a a low rainfall site. Yeah, I agree yeah. with that. Yeah, yeah I agree huh. with that. Oh, that's helpful. Uh, what are some common species that you've seen do particularly well in a wider range of environments? I would expect blue bunch wheatgrass just because it, you know, its ecological amplitude is wide. You see it, you know, in really dry sites all the way up to. 16, 20 inches of precipitation, and lots of different soil types. Uh, are there others that are that are pretty adaptable as well? Yeah, that one blue bunch is a good one. It, it, I, it's sometimes the more you learn about, kind of the more impressive you become. Hmm. Impressed by it. Uh, other ones, uh, Sherman Big Bluegrass, which used to be Poa ampla, mm-hmm. but is now is a Genetically, it's found out to be the same as Poa secunda, <laughs> way bigger. Uh, so that one's that does pretty good, um, mm. but it, it so it's pretty it does pretty good in a lot of different areas. Uh, but again, it kind of suffers in the really dry part of the state. Mm-hmm. Of course, I say that, and because uh, I've seen it fail in really dry parts, but then I'll go to a CRP seeding. I went to one last year expecting it to not be in good shape. And the guy says, it's been here 20 years. It looks like a million bucks. Mm. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it, as you yeah. know, ecology is very nuanced, right? Yeah. Soils, aspect, precip, um, you know, when the rain comes, when it doesn't come. And so it's uh, even maybe a, you know, a few, few miles away, something may do better than, where you are just because of all that I've seen the same thing with Idaho fescue you know some sites where the textbook description of uh, uh, Idaho fescue would say it shouldn't live there but there's Idaho fescue everywhere and it seems to be doing just great yeah exactly yeah uh, so let's see um, other ones that might of course you know the introduced ones do really well you know, Siberian wheatgrass, crusted wheatgrass. Uh, and then the pasture species, of course, you know, like uh, tall fescue, um, you know, perennial ryegrass. Of course, those are forage plants, not so much. They wouldn't really be, probably, you probably wouldn't find them so much in a fire situation mm. because they're, they're more pasture-like and mm-hmm. um, less range-like. 
So I guess for range grasses. Um, what would be a reason to pick an introduced species that uh, functions like a native, say, taller or mid-stature bunch grass? What would be the reason for using an introduced but naturalized grass species? I think that if you've got rangeland that's already been really overtaken by annuals or invasives, whether it's like star thistle or cheatgrass or whatever it might be, <clears throat> and um, getting uh, the original, again, I keep going with blue bunch, uh, but like to get a native plant a community established, if you could get a um, introduced um, plant can be established that is similar, like you say, functionally. Mm -hmm. But it'd be a, your odds of doing that. It's less risky. I think that would be mm. that'd be a great improvement, right, over the annuals and the broadleaves weeds. And, but it may yeah. not be perfect as far as well, right. Ecological match to what was there before, yeah, but it's still be close. Uh, less risk in terms of cost or a likelihood of establishment, or both. I'd say both. Okay, yeah, both. Yeah, there'd be nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think that's you kind of. Um, yeah, I don't. I think sometimes you can't when you're dealing when you're managing working lands. Mm -hmm. You got to kind of be pragmatic, right? And you got to kind of go with what's, you, I mean, you got to deal with what you can afford mm -hmm. and what will work. And you can't necessarily just uh, um, always shoot for the moon. You know? Well, right. nobody's going to do that. They could go broke, you know. Right. So you just, yeah. Mm -hmm. A lot of work and what you can, what you can get down. Yeah. You know, you see, it seems like most commercial seed mixes have, you know, three to five species in them. Uh, is there any value, you know, if somebody gets a good deal on a big batch of a single species like blue bunch wheatgrass, should they add something to it? Is it acceptable to just plant a single species? What are some of the reasons for having a seed mix of two to five species in there? Okay. <clears throat> yeah, so I think, um, first of all, the advantage of two to five species is they uh, kind of operate a Occupy different niches, so I think it's usually good to have two to five different species. Again, keeping in mind your management, and uh, and it's it's quite it's acceptable to go. I just want to go with this one. But if if it's like just general range land that was a native species, and you kind of want to just try to keep it back, get it back to what it, you know relatively was, um, you probably you know five species is pretty good. That way you kind of ensure you got a shallow rooted plant, a couple deep rooted perennials, shallow rooted perennials. Um, and, and maybe a small seeded, big seeded. You might even have a rhizomatous species you want. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, kind of mm -hmm. a mix of things. So I think it's generally speaking. And then, so, you know, and you get, if you're if a fire, you can have shallow soil, deep soils, north aspect, south aspect, oftentimes. Uh, you know, you're going to have a variety of conditions. And so it'd be good to have a, kind of a variety of species that. When they fall on that particular site, species A may not do so good on that site, but species B is going to do okay on that site. Yeah, and so that way it uh, you kind of you can kind of help ensure that you'll have more appropriate species across the landscape. I think Sam Fielendorf would say, with five species, you're five times less likely to be entirely wrong. <laughs> That's a good point. With any one of them. That's a good point. Yeah. Who said that? 
Sam Freelandorf, okay. uh, Range Gat, Oklahoma. Okay. You're One thing I, I would caution against, sometimes people will say, hey, I got this species mix from the dealer or from the seed vendor, you know? And uh, so oftentimes, and nothing against seed vendors. Uh, I work with them and they, I get good friends with them. Uh, but they, uh, you know, they got to they got to sell a product and they're not necessarily going to sell you the wrong stuff, but they may not be selling you really the completely right stuff either. Uh, you know, they might be some generic mix that they put together at the beginning of, of, of uh, seeding season. And, and then you call up and they go, oh, yeah, we got it. And they might have five, six species, which sounds good, but there may be two of those species in there. They're like, you wouldn't expect to do good no matter what. They don't, yeah. It's not appropriate for where you're putting the grass seed. Yeah. So um, I would always look into uh, making sure that if the, you do get a mix from a dealer, you know, make sure that all five of those species or whatever, so you're not wasting your money on one or two. It's mm-hmm. it's almost like they looked in the back room and went, oh, we got a whole bunch of this seed. Let's throw it in. We got to get rid of it. You know, yeah, and, I'm sure that's what happened. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the ones that's been talked about a lot and used a lot, and there's a lot of acres, is crested wheatgrass. There's some newer varieties of crested wheatgrass out there. What are your thoughts on on seeding with crested? I think crested, if you're, yeah, you no, know, crested is great if you have a pasture and you're using it. You need to use it in the spring pretty regularly. Uh, and that's what you use it for, and you need that, then um, having something hardy like crested that can take being grazed, you know, two springs out of three, or, you know, um, it, uh, no, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, cheap seed, easy to establish. Cheap, it's easy to establish. grazing value. You can kind of beat it up, as we like to say, and it yeah. comes back. Whereas if you, if you put blue bunch in that same situation, or, or most any other native seed here in the in the northwest, um, it, it won't last. It, it wouldn't last spring Unless grazing. you graze it more carefully. Unless you graze it more carefully. Yeah. And, yeah right. Yeah. So, um, no, it's, it's uh, again, getting back to that point about, you know, how what you goal and how you're using it um, has a lot to do with. And what's there, again, already, too. So. Mm-hmm. And what about uh, these sterile annuals that are sometimes planted after fire for rapid soil stabilization uh, is does that only work in a forested setting where you've got a little bit more moisture and usually more organic matter or would that be applicable on rangelands as well well i don't i haven't seen it done on rangelands very often yeah and i don't think it's necessary usually because that's usually you're usually putting those in high severity areas high slope deep ground yeah and um you usually don't have too much of that in range. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it, yeah, I don't think you really need it. And and as far as the the sterile, uh, I've been involved with quite a few winter wheat seedings in forest on steep, highly severe, high severity burn site areas. And uh, I haven't really seen, now maybe viewers, listeners out there may have seen this, but I, I haven't seen where winter wheat's a real issue. Um, it comes up for great that first year, and first spring, and then you have remnant populations for a little bit for a year or two, and then it's gone. Fizzled out. So mm-hmm. it really doesn't. Um, for some reason, it doesn't. I think the 
deer eat the seed heads off or something over time, or mm -hmm. it doesn't seed so well when it sits up there all summer long and we start winter, then falls off or something. It just doesn't seem to reseed to where it's an issue. Right. But now cereal rye feels like it's sort of similar to winter wheat, but it definitely can be a problem. Yeah, that's right. That's a good point. Here in uh, here in the Northwest, cereal rye is a real issue, which people in the Midwest, even on the West Side, grow it on purpose, you know, for mm -hmm. forage. Mm -hmm. But no, it's cereal rye is a whole different issue, and you should, hopefully nobody's seeding that um, after a fire. Uh, and one thing, and also I want to just say this real quick. Um, you know, like why why are we seeding, you know? And some people say, well, we're seeding so we don't have erosion, you know? And that's sure, that's why you do it in part. But sometimes the expectations, oh, so we won't have erosion this winter. Well, you really, you get right. no erosion control whatsoever until late spring of the following year. Right. And by that time, you've had snow oh, and rain. Yeah. So if it's going to erode, it's, it's pretty much already done it. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of... Yeah, it, uh, and even even winter wheat, there was a I was checking a fire post fire situation in July one year, and after a thunderstorm, and it really took the winter wheat really took really nice and pretty thick up there, and uh, even with that we had quite a bit of erosion. The, the winter wheat was all just laid down flat, and uh, so I'm sure it held a lot of soil, but a lot of soil still came off of that. Mm -hmm. So it's it's almost. You know, you can try to, you do it to reduce the risk, but you're never going to be able to eliminate the risk of erosion after mm -hmm. the fire. Uh, we, Washington State, had some pretty extensive range fires uh, that were now a year and a half ago. Uh, if if somebody, a private landowner in that, you know, in part of that fire mosaic, uh, has not seeded back and is not happy with the plant community that they ended up with after the fire. Is it too late to go back in and put some seed down? And if not, based on what considerations? Yeah. So, like we're talking like rangeland situation. Yeah. They went back. I suspect that by now it'd probably be occupied by cheatgrass mm -hmm. if that was the case. So. Um, and then, and that that being the case, um, it, uh, they they kind of maybe missed an opportunity because now the cheatgrass, too, like you say, a few years later, the cheatgrass is going to be full force, mm -hmm. and they're, now they're going to have to deal with that, and uh, so they're going to have to do some site prep, um, you know, some, some kind of herbicide treatment or whatever to deal with that cheatgrass, and then try to maybe seed in perennials. Um, and I guess if for some reason they're in a site that doesn't have cheatgrass that hasn't come in, um, I guess there'd be no reason why not to, depending again, what other species are there, drill in if they can, drill in and uh, uh, seed compatible species that, for their grazing management that would still work together. Yeah, I know the the burn station in Oregon has done some research on uh, the combinations of fire and herbicide to uh, control cheatgrass and then follow that up with seeding. I think most private landowners would be pretty scared of doing a controlled burn 
for the purpose of <laughs> seeding after it. But right. uh, if you if a person could do that, you know, say you could burn it early enough in the spring when the cheatgrass will burn, uh, but everything else won't. Um, would that be a worthwhile consideration? Well, I think it. I think bringing, yeah, I think bringing alone um, for cheatgrass isn't going to do anything, especially in a prescribed burn where it's you're not going to wait till it's 100 degrees with 20 mile right. hour winds. Right. Um, so, so I think burning burning with combination with herbicide is great because you can like burn off a lot of that you know all the vegetation. And then things are going to green up, and then you can hit it with a herbicide. And I think that's that really helps the herbicide get to the point of contact on their fresh green leaves when they're growing. So I think the I think combination of burning and herbicide is, is a good combination. And then and then planting followed by seeding. Yeah. 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 Uh, last question, then I'll let you go. I'm certain that I read somewhere that following fire, there's often a, a flush of nutrients that results in higher than average seed viability on the in the perennial plants in a year or two post-fire. Uh, do you know if that's the case? And, and and if so, to what extent is that helpful in trying to reestablish vegetation? Oh, I think that's, I think Mother Nature is kind of, is, I think the plants have kind of evolved to do that. Uh, I've been to areas where there's pine grass seeding and you know dug for a pine grass area, and pine grass, as you may or may not know, that you know they almost never have seed heads on them. Mm -hmm. It's ominous grass that mm -hmm. you know, and and I didn't recognize the plants. I was like, what is this big bush grass with all these seed heads? What the heck is that? Mm -hmm. And they were all over after this fire, and it was mm -hmm. uh, it was pine grass. They went to seed like crazy. Mm -hmm. And you'll see, you know, blue bunch do that. And, and other grasses, yeah, that just that release of, obviously some nutrients are released in the atmosphere, so yeah. some are made more available. Right. Yeah, and those grasses just really respond well. And that's, that's kind of, that's probably almost another reason why if your burn isn't, if it's still low severity, um, let your grasses do this, boom, you know, and then if you control grazing afterwards, like the rest of that first year, which means not graze for a whole year, and then defer the second year till after seed set. That may go a long ways towards getting your range back in shape. Yeah, it's amazing how uh, you know. I'll just say this real quick. It's amazing a lot of bear teams I've been on. You go out to a site after a fire, and you go, "Oh my gosh, this is terrible." It's a moonscape. It's a moonscape. This mm -hmm. is never, you know. And then. uh and then you come back five years, you're like, wow, mm -hmm. what happened to the moonscape? It looks mm -hmm. great. <laughs> mm -hmm. it, uh, it, uh, I mean, not always, obviously, but uh, yeah. So it's those high severity areas are really, really the issue. Yeah. And I've been pretty surprised Yeah, in, say, an August fire and by, you know, September 15th, you see four inch long leaves coming off of the plant grounds where you haven't even had any rain yet. But and you haven't had any rain yet. Somehow they're coming back. Yeah. And yeah. That, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It, uh, and that's sort of those things that, you know, um, be ready, but you almost tell people, you know, don't panic, you know, just, you know, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Go out and look at it. If it looks like it's not high severity, if it's moderate or less, you may be okay. 
Yeah. Because it, yeah, a lot of people put a lot of money. I mean, it's just, it's, you know, it seems like it's intuitive. Like, oh, it's all burnt off. Let's throw seed on it. Gotta do something. And, uh, and it's really, a lot of times it's better for not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like this reinforces one of my convictions about range management, which is that it's a lot easier to maintain a perennial, a healthy perennial grass community than it is to replace one that's been degraded. And so, uh, you know, taking management steps such as being cautious with grazing, being careful about grazing to avoid losing the perennials in the first place is way money ahead compared to trying to fix one that has been degraded into cheap grass and tumble mustard. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And when, and when it comes to fire, you can almost, when it comes to fire, if you if you know your, your range is was in good shape, you know, prior to a fire, you almost don't have to worry. Mm-hmm. You almost go, it was in great shape. It's going to come back fine. Mm-hmm. Now, like you, if it was grass, then it's going to probably, if it's in bad shape, it could get worse. Right. Be yeah. more cheatgrass. It's going to be more cheatgrass. Yeah. So it's, it's, um, it, uh, yeah, in fact, there was a, we talked about prescribed burning. And when we were developing a plan years ago on the res, you know, it's like, well, where should we prescribe burn? And they're, we were having to talk about that, and they wanted some guidance on that. And then, and what it basically came down to, if it was in good shape, a good shape rangeland, um, which you might think doesn't need a prescribed burn, that you can prescribe burn. If it's mm-hmm. in bad shape, and you think that needs a prescribed burn, well, a prescribed burn is not going to help that anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of it's it's not intuitive that way. It's like mm-hmm. the opposite. Uh, I do have one more question okay. since you've Sorry, we've know. got the platform here. Um, what would you say are a couple key management points to keep healthy perennial grass rangeland in a perennial grass rangeland state? Yeah, that, I think understanding um, uh, the grass growth, um, the physiography, uh, physiology, excuse me, of the grass growth, like when um, uh, when it's developing, it's how it's growing points, whether they're low, when they get elevated. So you know when your cattle um, bite them off, and when um, how that affects basically regrowth and all that. So I guess really understanding the basics of grass growth for your particular grasses that you're managing is is really the key because um, it's it's. Not just like, well, I, I, didn't, I only grazed half or whatever, this or that. It's like when you graze it, how long you graze it, whether it's being rebit and all this and that. So I guess mm-hmm. um, really understand your grass and how it reacts to grazing um, and, uh, and how so you know how you can get your forage from that grass, but without giving it long-term damage. That's, uh, that's really the key. And here in, in Washington, we have... Um, tech notes that, that talk about critical periods for the grass growth in this state. And uh, what are the critical periods when you should only gra- graze during the critical period once every three years mm-hmm. and different things like that. So that'll keep your range in good shape. Uh, just like I mentioned, you know, crested can be grazed more. So if you understand, oh, this grass, I can graze it harder more and still be okay. This grass, I can't do that same thing with. So I can just really understand your grass and, and how, you, how you graze it. Is the most important. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I and from talking with quite a few ranchers, there's a lot of people who don't know about some of the really useful resources put out by NRCS. So uh, we will put a link to some of those things okay. in the show notes when this episode releases, and uh, see if we can push push people to some some good guidance that they haven't come across before. Um, and I always recommend them uh, talking to. Actually, their extension agents, their local extension agents, are awesome, as well as NRCS field offices. Yeah. Great. Uh, my guest today was Richard Flaner, State Rangeland Specialist with the Washington NRCS. Richard, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement.